We think lives, our own circumstances, everything that is going on, and to trade our attention on you this morning. And I pray that would continue as we open your word together. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, take the truth of Scripture and drill it down deeply into our hearts so that we hear what it is that you want to say to us. Father, may your voice be heard here this morning. Strip away everything that is not you so that we can hear the clear truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. We're focusing on worship this morning, but as we begin to open God's Word together, I want to talk to you just a little bit about a word that has become extremely important to many people over the last couple of years in particular, and the word is assimilation. Everybody know what the word assimilation means? Assimilation means just fall into line with everyone else. Comply. Stop making waves. Stop struggling. Just do what everyone else is doing. I feel like that's become a very popular word and a very popular sentiment in our culture today. This is a favorite line of reasoning, and I don't... uh, ever want to be political from here, but it is a favorite line of reasoning with our budding socialists around us, our LGBT community, transgender advocates, and the like. Assimilate. Just accept it. It happened here in our own community, didn't it, over the last couple of months when the school board tried to ram through a policy that was completely against the truth of what we know to be the truth of Scripture, until a few people stood up and said, this cannot happen. Assimilate. Why can't you just accept this like everyone else is doing? I don't know if any of you heard of uh, Ivan Provorov. Anybody heard that name lately in the last week or so? Ivan Provorov? Ivan Provorov is a player in the NHL with the Philadelphia Flyers, and Ivan Provorov refused to go out onto the ice before one of their games in Philadelphia last week because it was LGBT Pride Night, and they were going to do a lot of activities on the ice. And he refused to go out, and when he asked why he wouldn't go out, why he wouldn't just do what everyone else was doing... He said, my choice is to stay true to my religious beliefs. Mr. Provorov is Russian Orthodox. Of course, he was roasted in the news and on social media. There has been one interesting development over the past week since this happened, though. On all of the fan memorabilia and uh, uh, NHL swag sites on the Internet, Ivan Provorov's jersey has sold out everywhere. I find that very interesting. But one NHL analyst, in addressing the situation, said this. This is a a direct quote from a guy that's on the NHL network every night doing games. He said, Ivan Provorov can get on a plane any day he wants if it's too much of a problem for him to, guess what, assimilate in this country. Why does that matter to us? Well, we've been talking about the fact that the church is the community of all true believers in Jesus Christ. 
And we are getting pressure every day and on every side to assimilate, to fall into line, to stop making waves, to stop struggling. But a couple of weeks ago, we introduced you to the Greek word in the New Testament for church, which if you remember is ekklesia. And ekklesia means the called out ones. As the church, as true believers in Jesus Christ, we are called out of the world and we are called to a distinct lifestyle. Individually, in our own lives, each person here that is a Christ follower is called to a distinct lifestyle. We are called to that as families and we are called to this distinct lifestyle corporately as a church. characterized by biblical doctrine, characterized by fellowship. And last week, Tim talked to us about being characterized by mission. The mission of reconciling people to God, which is God's mission. It originated with God when before the foundations of the world, he determined that he would send Jesus Christ to this earth that we might be reconciled to him. Now this morning we want to talk about the fourth distinctive of the church, the called out ones, and that is worship. Worship is the act of glorifying God. That's the biblical definition. Worship is the act of glorifying God. Now at the same time, the world has its own definition of worship. The world worships self. The world worships creation. It worships the earth. The world worships pagan lifestyles, but the church must worship God. We must distinguish ourselves in this way. Now, to be clear, to give a disclaimer, lest anyone would misconstrue our intentions here this morning as we look at these scriptures, we are called to love our community. We are called to love our neighbors. We're called to, to care about the people who are around us. We must do that. Christ said in response to the question, what is the great commandment? What did he say? First of all, you must love God with all your heart and soul and strength. And the second one is just like the first, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And so in saying these things, we in no way deny that we have a responsibility to love and care for those around us. But we must not compromise the truth of the scripture. We must not assimilate. We're called to follow Christ, not called to follow this world. So the church must worship God. We must worship together. And as we're going to see as we work our way through a couple of passages of scripture, we are commanded to worship by singing. So we're going to start this morning by looking at a couple of verses in Colossians chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. The verses will be on the screen. But we're going to go to the Psalms in a few moments to learn a couple of more things. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 3. So Colossians 3 and verse 16 is the first verse I want to read for you. And it says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Now, the first thing I want us to notice before we go any further into this, this passage is that Paul wrote these words to the church as a whole. If we were to go back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 2, we would see that Paul says, I'm addressing these words to the church at Colossae in that city. He was writing it to everyone, to the church as a body. So these are corporate words, and that in itself, I think, distinguishes us. Because if anything is prevalent in our world today, in our culture, in our, in our communities, it is the spirit of individualism. I'm doing what I want to do. You do what you're going to do. I'll take care of me. You take care of you. And just don't try to tell me what I need to be say, saying or doing or thinking or making important in my life, right? It's this individualism. And so already we are being distinguished here by the fact that he is addressing these things to us together. Now, three weeks ago when we began our called out series and talking about the distinctives of the church, we talked about the importance of doctrine and truth and scripture. And here Paul says, it must dwell in you. The word dwell here means to settle in or to be at home in our hearts. If you're a Christ follower here this morning and I was to do a little open heart surgery on you, when I crack you open, I should see God's word in there. That's what Paul is saying. The word of God must dwell in you, must, must settle in, it must become at home in your heart. Now, how do you think God's word gets there into our hearts? This is the easiest question I'm going to ask you all morning. How do you think it gets there? We've got to put it in there. We've got to put it in there. A few moments ago when, when we were singing together, Tara said, our minds are not naturally bent toward the truth of Scripture, and that is absolutely correct. If the Word of God is going to dwell in our hearts, we've got to put it there. And Paul says it needs to dwell in our hearts, dwell in us richly. That means abundantly, in a huge quantity. How is that going to happen? Well, it means that we need to constantly be putting God's word into our hearts. I've learned something as I've gotten a little older. I, I'm, I hope I'm getting a little smarter and a little better at the things that I need to do. When I was a kid, I absolutely hated vegetables. I presume that that's probably a kid thing, right? I mean, there's some, I don't know, there's some weird kids out there that just love vegetables and broccoli and spinach and all that stuff. I hated that stuff. I hated it. And as I've gotten older, I've learned to like some of those things. And a few of them I've just kind of learned to tolerate. I still don't like them, but I know I should eat them. And so I do. And there's some certain ways that you can prepare them that make them a little more palatable. One of the things I always wished about vegetables was if, you know, broccoli, if I could just like eat it once and be good, I could do that. But the problem is, you can't just do it once, right? If you're going to be healthy, you can't just eat right once. You can't just exercise once. You have to keep doing it. 
And the same is true if the word of God is going to dwell richly in our hearts, if there's going to be a huge quantity of the truth of Scripture in our hearts, we have to continually be putting it in there. So Paul is saying, called out ones, please keep putting the truth of God's word in your hearts over and over and over and over. And then what happens, does he say, then we'll be teaching and admonishing. That's the positive and the negative. Tim talked about that a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about fellowship. Remember that? He was talking about the fact that part of fellowship is that we encourage each other and part of fellowship is that we challenge each other. Sometimes we're struggling and we need to be encouraged. We need somebody to come along and lift us up and help us because we're having a hard time walking. And then sometimes we need someone to come alongside us and challenge us because we're off track and we need somebody to bring us back. Who are we going to teach and admonish? Well, he says right there, we're going to do it to one another. Again, corporately, the church, together. In all wisdom. Again, the truth of Scripture. And then what? What is the process? Here it is. The Scripture takes up residence in our hearts. It permeates our lives. It infiltrates every thought, every word, every deed. Then we teach and admonish each other. That's fellowship, by the way. And when we do that, notice what the verse says. It leads to praise and worship and thanksgiving to God. Because we know what God has done for us. I want you to get this connection. The more we fill our hearts and our minds with the truth of Scripture, the more inclined we are to worship. Did you get that? The more we fill our hearts and minds with the truth of Scripture, the more inclined we are to worship. Paul said it this way over in Ephesians 5, 19. He said something very similar. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, Paul repeats the fact that this is something that we do to one another. In Colossians 3, he says, in your heart... In Ephesians 5, he says, with your heart. Now, I know what some of you are going to say. Some of you like the Colossians 3 version better because it says, in your heart. So you can say, well, I get it. You got to worship. But I, I do it in my heart. You know, I just do it in my heart. But in Ephesians 5, Paul says, with your heart. And remember, we're doing this corporately, together, to one another. I think what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying, make sure your heart matches your mouth. I don't know if your mouth is like this, but my mouth is like this sometimes. Sometimes it disconnects from my brain and my heart, and I say things that I shouldn't say. Paul says, 
if you're going to worship properly, if you're going to worship in a way that honors God, make sure your heart matches your mouth. How do we do that? Well, remember what he's saying. Let the truth of Scripture fill your mind and fill your heart so that it spills out. I want to suggest to you this morning that singing and worshiping is an indicator of what God is doing in your heart. Oh, I don't sing. I don't sing. I've had a lot of people tell me that I don't sing. It's cool. You know, this whole thing is neat to watch and listen to, but I don't sing. If you don't sing, you're disobeying the direct command of Scripture. There are dozens of passages in Scripture that command us to sing. There are no qualifiers here. It doesn't say, those of you who have perfect pitch should sing, and everybody else should be quiet so they don't ruin it. It doesn't say those of you who have pretty decent voices should sing and everybody else should hum. Another common objection to this command that we are all to sing is something like this. You don't know what's going on in my life. We come to church and everybody's standing up front and they're all happy and smiley and strumming the guitar and playing the drums and everybody's excited. But you don't know my life, dude. My life stinks. My life is falling apart. I can't sing. I don't want to sing. I have no reason to sing because you don't know what's going on in my life. Well, you know, you're right. I don't. But my challenge to you is to fill your heart with the truth of Scripture and sing your thankfulness. This is the command of God to us. Don't you love how as human beings we have the ability to rationalize and to make some commands of God more important than the others? And isn't it interesting how the ones that are more important are the ones that really resonate with us and the ones that we feel are less important are the ones that we really don't like too much? Have you ever noticed that? Well, Mike, that's kind of strong. You, uh, you might want to back that down a bit because... Sometimes you just can't respond that way. Sometimes you just can't sing. Sometimes there is nothing to be thankful for. The Holy Spirit knew that you would say that. And so he told Paul to write this. Look at verse 17 in Colossians 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, 
do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, when does this come into play? When do you think verse 17 of Colossians 3 is true? What do you think it, re- it, it applies to? That's a trick question. Did you see the verse? Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I think it means whatever you do and in everything you do, give thanks. I think it means just what it says, in everything. Now, we tend to take this verse and we say, well, you know, it's not very spiritual, but if I'm sweeping the floor, I should do that to the glory of God. Or if I'm cleaning toilets, or if I'm digging ditches, or if I'm flagging people in a construction zone, or whatever it is that you do, I should do that for the glory of God. And that's certainly too true. You can, you can apply it that way, but what I want you to see this morning is that the Holy Spirit put that verse right after the verse commanding us to fill our hearts and minds with the truth of Scripture so that we can worship together. That's the context. The context is in terms of our worship. So I think that we can apply this verse this way. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other, with each other, whatever is going on, and in everything that we're in the middle of, we need to do it. Even when it's tough. Even when it's painful. We need to be giving thanks when we're grieving. We need to be giving thanks while we're enduring pain. And perhaps we could even say that it's, it's even more important to do it at those times when things are very difficult. This is the most basic rule of thumb for the Christ follower. In everything, give thanks. Now, the word thanksgiving there, or giving thanks, literally means acknowledging that God's grace works. That's what the word literally means, acknowledging that God's grace works. When we worship, when we sing, out of the abundance of our hearts, with hearts and minds full of the truth of Scripture, we are acknowledging that God is on the throne. That's what we're doing. We're saying, yes, God, you are on the throne. When is that most important? It's most important to anchor ourselves when things are difficult, when it feels like our lives are falling apart, when our when our finances are in the garbage or when our marriage is falling apart or when our kids are off doing who knows what and not what we want them to be doing, when things appear to be going sideways in every area of our lives, this is when more than ever we need to acknowledge and understand that God is on the throne. 
that he's in control. When we realize we are not in control of anything. And when we do this, when we do this together in this setting, acknowledging that God is in control, acknowledging that that he has done great things for us even when we are in the middle of pain, this distinguishes us from the world. This is a distinguishing mark of the church, this corporate thankfulness and worship. Can you think of any other group of people in our culture that gathers to give thanks? I can basically put every other gathering of people in our culture in two categories. Either we gather to be entertained at a ball game or a movie theater or a concert, or you gather to riot (laughs) or complain. No one else does this. No one else gathers to be thankful. But we must. I want to just go over to Psalm 145 for a moment and read a couple of verses here for you. To get a little bit more guidance on our worship. Psalm 145 and verse 1, the psalmist says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Many of you probably know this. Maybe some of you don't. But the Psalms was the hymn book for the Jewish people. They they literally sang all of these passages of Scripture in the book of Psalms. This is a very, very popular one. I'll, I'll worship you forever, God. You're the king. That's what we were just talking about, right? When we worship, we're acknowledging that God is on the throne. You're the king, and I will bless your name, he says. The word bless literally means to kneel. And he says, I'll do it every day, every day. Let me just take a quick poll. How many people have a fantastic day every day? count is real low in case you couldn't see behind you. But when does the psalmist say he is going to bless God? He is going to worship him? He's going to kneel before him? Every day, not just the good days. Every day, God, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to, I'm going to kneel. The psalm was incredibly important in the Jewish culture. In fact, for those who were devoutly practicing Jews, They would repeat this psalm. They would read it twice every morning and once every evening. You know why? To keep it at the forefronts of their minds. To remind themselves of what they needed to do. To remind themselves that God was the king. And they did it every day. The good days and the crappy days. 
to remind themselves that he was the king. Verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. This is a concept that we have to grasp if we're going to worship properly, and that is we're not just worshiping God for what he has done for us, although he has done amazing things for us, we are simply worshiping God because he is great, because he is on the throne of the world. Why is that so important? Well, it's really, really important for the crappy days, right? When you get to the end of a really good day, it's easy to say, God, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for how you blessed my family. Thank you that everyone has good health. Thank you so much that we're all getting along so well. Thank you for how well my job is going. That's easy. But what do we have to be thankful for when our job stinks and our kids are brats and our marriages are like a war zone. What do we have to give thanks for on those days? The psalmist says, still, every day, even on the end of those days, I'm going to worship you. We're worshiping God for who he is, for his greatness. The psalmist says, your greatness is it's incomprehensible. It's beyond what I can imagine because you're in control of this whole world. Verse 4, one generation shall command your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. We have a responsibility to, to the next generation. We have a responsibility to, to pass along these truths of worship, what it means to, to put God on the throne and to acknowledge him there to our kids. But I want you to notice here that it's not just to those who are younger than us, but it could be to those who are older than us. He says, one generation shall commend your works to another. I need to show those younger than me what it's like to worship. I need to show those older than me what it's like to worship. I like to look at those who are younger than me and learn from them what it is to worship. I want to see those that are older than me worship. Verse 5, one on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your goodness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Notice the progression there. I'm going to meditate on your greatness, and then I'm going to speak of your greatness and then we will sing of your righteousness. When we meditate on the word, it leads to right speaking and the proclaiming of the truth. And eventually that leads to singing and worship. Because of God and his character and his worthiness. So what are we saying here this morning? We're saying this. The church, the called out ones, worship God. When the world is worshiping self and creation, when the world is glorifying pagan lifestyles, the question for us is, who are you worshiping? Who are you magnifying? Who are you drawing people's attention to? Is your life and are you, with your voice, acknowledging that God is on the throne? Psalm 150 is a call to worship, and I want to read it for you here as we draw this to a close. 
Psalm 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now when I read that, I read what the psalmist has to say here. I'm trying to sum it all up in a line or two. And I would say this, that we are encouraged to give God our unencumbered praise. You notice here, he's talking about stringed instruments, he's talking about wind instruments, he's talking about brass, he's talking about everything, with everything that we have. I'm kind of a drum fan myself, and I like this. I don't know if we should tell Steve this or not, but it says, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. That literally means huge symbols. Why do we do that? We do it because it's fun? That is fun. Do we do it because we enjoy it? Well, I don't know. I enjoy it. Maybe you don't. No, we do it. We praise God with, with unencumbered praise fully and finally because we are so thankful for the grace of God in our lives. When we learn of his greatness, when we see his power and glory, the result in our lives must be adoration of God. This is my challenge. Because I believe worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Yes, of course, we fellowship together. Yes, of course, we teach the word. Yes, of course, we reach out in mission. But all of those things ought to culminate in worship. Ought to culminate in adoration of God. How do I know this? Well, think about Revelation 22. That's the very last chapter in the Bible. And the very last scene of Scripture is, guess what? Worship. John says, in that day, we will be with him. And he will be our God. And we will be his people. And we will finally see him in all of his glory. And in all of his greatness. And what will our response be? Worship. Adoration. Fully and finally understanding him. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people together worshiping God. For his greatness. My friends, if you can't open your mouth and sing and worship God today, then I want to challenge you. Is there enough of the truth of his word in your heart? Because when our hearts are full of the knowledge of who God is and what he does, 
worship and adoration will come out. Look, if you don't have the best voice in the world, join the club. I stand up here every week and I blast them right off. That's, by the way, that's why they have in-ear monitors now instead of these, because they're like, Mike, you got to just keep it down because we can't concentrate on what we're supposed to be doing. You're throwing us off. Out of the abundance of your heart comes worship. If there's no worship, what's in your heart? This should be a preview of what that's going to be. I want you to stand up this morning. We're going to close by worshiping together. I want to encourage you to, to worship with us this morning and give thanks. Father, the word of truth is very clear to us. And that is that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, challenge each one of us that is here this morning, every individual person. What does my mouth speak? It indicates what my heart is full of. And Father, if there are those here this morning who recognize that your truth is not filling their hearts and lives, would you, would you strengthen them and give them the, the courage and the desire to fill their hearts with the truth of your word, that they might give thanks with their voices, that we might praise you with our mouths. Lord, this is an individual decision. This is something that each one of us has to get on our faces before you and acknowledge whether you are truly the Lord of our lives, whether you are truly on the throne of our lives. We know you're on the throne of this world, but do you really have control of our hearts and our minds through the truth and the Holy Spirit that we might give thanks, that we might speak of the effectiveness of your grace in our lives, even on the crappy days. And then, Father, together... I pray that we as a church would be characterized by the spirit of worship, by this giving thanks corporately when we come together, that we pour out our hearts, that we lift our voices and acknowledge your goodness and your greatness, that the cymbals would clash and the guitars would strum and the pianos would play and the tambourines would shake in acknowledgement of your greatness. We do not do this for our own entertainment, Lord, but to offer to you the offering of our worship and our thanks. I pray that we would be characterized by these things, that those in this community would know that we stand together as a body every week giving thanks to you. We set aside our complaints and we give thanks for your goodness to us, for you have been good. Lord, help us to go out into this community, into our world, our homes, our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, and to be a light on a hill so that when people see the way that we live, they would glorify you. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us in our time together today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. I hope you have a great week.